Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. On this episode, we pick up where we left off last time in our discussion on vocation. You may have noticed that a lot of our understanding of what we were called to had changed over the years of doing ministry. With our shifts in understanding of vocation came moments of evaluation. To borrow a phrase from our last episode, each of us went through a process of finding out what it is that brings us to life, while at the same time determining what it is that takes life. Now you have heard us talk about this in another way, using the word rejection. Now this is a word that you may have remembered us using in our past episodes, which is why today we want to make very clear what it is we mean when we use it, and what specifically we are rejecting. This, friends, is what today's episode is all about. Join us as we continue to explore a world of subversive presence on the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. What I noticed was that Christians could not have conversation with each other if they disagreed with one another. It's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. I always feel like I'm not what people think of when they think of a pastor. I went to school for youth ministry and have now figured out how to do like construction work. It's good, good stuff. The church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. We have to like allow ourselves to embrace new ways of being in a place. Insurgent revolutions, i.e. guerrilla warfare, is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people. How do we be eternally faithful? Like literally, like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years, people aren't going, he was evil. Why are we so afraid? We believe that God is at work in all places, in all people, at all times. That is amazing and that should give us hope. We are the Gorilla Pastors. Join us as we explore a world of ministry founded on subversive presence. At this point, it's almost routine, something that we hear about on nearly a weekly basis. The latest lead pastor of some megachurch who has had yet another fall from grace. As I record this episode, a wildly popular documentary is chronicling this very thing with the Hillsong Church in New York. Perhaps the most famous Christian podcast of all time made a name for itself discussing this very issue in the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Through the years, these sorts of things have become a mainstay in the American evangelical community. At this point, we basically expect it to happen, which is a problem, and sheds light on what we specifically reject. Because most of these stories have a common thread, and once you pull it, the whole thing unravels. In her book, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Dumez chronicles it well, showing the progression of the American evangelical culture as it seeks power and influence. And they have historically done so by naming their next biggest and baddest champion 
to create their cult of personality around. As a result, pulpits become soapboxes for partisan politics, and sanctuaries become places for campaign rallies. And this formulaic and institutionalized version of Christianity becomes problematic at best, as it seeks to eliminate all who disagree. But the common ground in all of this is something that can be found in each and every one of us. For the thing we strive to reject is in fact, pride. Yeah, I, I think I had to realize I was rejecting something um, based on uh, the way that people responded to the way that the three couples that started this ministry in Seattle with me, when we would talk to people within the church, uh, people would get very defensive about what they were doing. And I I struggled to say, wait, 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 I didn't, I didn't say this was our way was right and your way is wrong. Um, there's an and in all of it. Um, and so I think what I rejected and both intentionally, but also by accident was the idea that pastoring could be brought down into a very small and uh, concrete job description in hours and that someone who'd been doing it for 20 years could then say, this is what it looks like to be pastor, to a young pastor, um, and not this, but not that. So it's a lack of humility within the, within, within uh, uh, the description of what it means to be pastor. So I, I think that's what I mean is when there's a lack of humility, when we pigeonhole stuff, I mean, it's all part of like soundbite culture, everything, where we say, Oh, this is what my 20 years of pastoring looks like. And therefore, young pastor, this is what pastoring looks like. Um, and forgetting that we live within not only a creative kingdom imagination and kingdom ministry that is huge, that needs to reach into all parts of this world, um, to say that, and, and, not, and that's leaving out the internal created person of the pastor themselves uh and and their trauma and shadow self and everything they've been through and victories in their own life to say that those all of this isn't connected and so it 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 can only be defined in this job description and in these hours and in this way i just it's 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 it lacks it lacks theological imagination it lacks humility i mean it's it's absolutely ridiculous and yeah so that's i think that's what i'm intentionally rejecting uh now that doesn't mean if you preach three times a week and you know and run a church of a thousand and manage a team of pastors and office staff you know like many big churches do that it's unfaithful i'm not saying that at all that's that's the point is i'm saying it's 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 and it's it's big it's it's as big let me say let me say it this way, try to say it clearly. The job description of pastoring is as diverse as the kingdom imagination. So you're rejecting a one-size-fits-all paradigm for ministry. That's what I'm hearing. Yes, yes. And because I've seen it scar people too. I've seen young ministers uh, who go into a church 
and they in their first job and they're narrowed down into a job that doesn't fit who they are as a person, who they were created to be, and who their vocation is, okay? And therefore, the experience is so negative and so full of tension that they leave ministry and sometimes leave faith altogether. And so if anything that we talk about in this podcast, it's a hope that this gives a huge kingdom imagination, a benevolent orthodoxy to young ministers who are going, who may or may not be stuck uh, going with within paradigms that are going, this is only what it looks like. And it only can be this way uh, to say, man, there is more and there is more in the reflection and the pastoring of it. So my understanding of vocation is absolutely why I'm no longer a lead pastor. Uh, that's pretty pretty much on the nose. Why I'm not interesting and in be interested in being a traditional Sunday morning lead pastor anymore because there was a confliction about what vocation meant as lead pastor. There was a difference of expectations. There was a difference of desires in what my time should be spent doing, what I was paid to do, what my values should be, and how my time should reflect that. And so my understanding of vocational ministry is absolutely linked with what I, I guess, one aspect of something that I am currently rejecting. So this rejection is not a rejection of a person. It's not a rejection of a people group. It's this rejection of a paradigm. I I love church. I think Sunday morning gatherings can be incredibly meaningful and formative, and they can be such a wonderful time for people to gather together. But when this understanding of pastor is handcuffed to a particular style of vocation that is a very, using our own language, narrow kingdom mindset, that is where it breaks for me. That is what I would like to reject. I also specifically want to note that I don't think that everyone needs to reject that vocation. There are many. I know so. I currently work with some that their vocational calling perfectly fits into the Sunday morning worship, traditional gathering, vocational ministry. And that's great. We need that. I think that's wonderful. I just know I don't fit that. So my understanding of vocation, why I'm doing what I'm doing now, is directly connected with, with what I guess I'm rejecting with how I do ministry now. But what about you? I realized that there was a concoction of a couple variables that made for this sort of toxic cocktail in the 90s for me. And that was a very limited understanding of vocation, which was to be called by God from outside ourselves towards an ideal, which was this image of a pastor, generally male, generally middle class, etc., etc., leading by way of articulate presentation of the gospel from the pulpit. That was one variable. The other variable was the rise in what we now understand as celebrity pastoring, right? So there was the epitome of that calling, which looked like someone with a 10,000 or 20,000 person church, right? And that was highly toxic for a young person like me that was inherited that sense of call, that understanding of calling while there was an increased amount of public exposure for people that were evidently succeeding in fulfilling that calling. So what, what was I to do at 16, 17, 18? It was to desire, literally to lust after that successful concept 
of pastoral ministry, or in, in my case, personal calling. And, but, and it took nearly a decade and a half and a lot of hurt and failure after failure of trying to pursue someone else's concept of what pastoral ministry was and someone else's concept, to be quite honest, of what calling was for me to finally realize one critical piece. I take that back, two critical pieces. That's not what calling is necessarily, and that's definitely not what my calling is. I reject that. I reject that not because the call to a particular kind of of embodiment of leadership is something that is altogether bad and needs to be disposed of. But because it's not my vocational path, I reject the dishonesty that I gave myself when I said, yes, that is what I'm supposed to do. I reject the foolishness and the lack of wisdom and the immaturity to covet a massive congregation because it was so attractive, appealing, glittery, whatever you want to call it, right? I reject a lack of understanding of my true self. I reject a... I reject that I could get away without doing my own inner work to truly discern the unique nature of my call. And lastly, I reject, you know, the two decades that I invested into somebody else's understanding of successful ministry. What I embrace is not less pastoral, and what I embrace and embody is not somehow less vocationally, you know, sincere. What I embrace is not, you know, less faithful. What I embrace is actually the opposite. It's more consistent with my inner self. It's more consistent, as Parker Palmer said, and, you know, my true self. And, and certainly it's more, it, it's an embracing of, I think, what's a more sustainable model of ministry. So essentially what I'm saying is what I reject is what I formally pursued, which was someone else's call that wasn't mine. You know, and I've, I, I think in recent years, I'd say maybe the last five years, I've fully embraced, you know, a, a vocational uniqueness that parallels my created uniqueness. And it's, it's, it's in that sort of symmetry that I think we, we tap into kind of a well of, you know, of resource, both, you know, in terms of our giftings, but also in terms of just a divine inspiration that is bottomless, right? Um, that is what I, what I might call, you know, you know, magnificently inspired or something like that. If I have to frame rejection with, with some sort of really concise language, I would say I reject anything that sacrifices real relational fellowship, faith, community living, and instead prioritizes institutional success. Like that's, that's how I would articulate what I particularly reject. So you could go down the list of, of what is institutional success look like. I would say, you know, what you were talking about, the cult of personality, megachurch, celebrity thing is one thing, church growth models, attraction models that, that hinge on having the best prepackaged show on Sunday morning that just lends to a more consumeristic mentality instead of a genuine 
faith community gathering. So if there's a rejection of something, it's where we prioritize some sort of measurable, successful, growth, metrics-based, institutionalized way of doing church, as opposed to, hey, uh, let's care about people, let's gather together and understand that this this book we read a lot, the Bible, has something to say about what we do when we're together and what we do when we're not and what we do in the communities that we live in, and let's, just, let's focus on that simple, that simple approach to, to doing church. But yeah, that's the specifics of, if I have to get really concise, that's the specifics of what it is that I would reject. You know, I... Go ahead, Brian. No, can I just jump in real quick and I just ask a question? Because this is... I... What I'm hearing from both of you, the specific, there's some specificity. Specificity. There you go. Uh, There's that, uh, that you guys are, that that Josiah, you're naming. What I'm also hearing a lot, Ryan, and I want to, I want to, like, is this, is like, you are rejecting a prescribed calling. Uh, without the personal inner journey or doing the journey, the work like with like, it's almost like I'm 25. I'm graduating from seminary. This is what your calling looks like because I'm the senior pastor and this is what my calling has looked like. And so go do that with, um, and forget all that in, the the inner work will happen maybe if you if you look inwardly but you know what i mean does that make yeah. sense like but and as if as if it's not all tied together um like i think the openness if i was a lead pastor and there's a young seminarian just graduated and they're going into and i'm saying you don't have an identity yet as pastor it will be formed in your ability to do work in community and do your inner work. And that's the spread of it, right? I mean, is, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly. Well, that, that, is, that is capturing a, a, a large component. And, and here's how I came to that. Or here's the component I think it's capturing, and here's how I came to that. I realized that I didn't need to reject all of these broken systems if I was aware of my inner brokenness that needed to be daily nurtured, understood, addressed, held, given grace, right? Like they wouldn't have even been appealing to me. But what it was is I was this young, kind of ego-driven, highly goal-oriented, sort of empty vessel, not realizing there was a universe of me within. And I was saying, here, go take on this load of work. The implicit message there is that you will find your identity through this work, i.e. your vocation will emerge within the boundaries and limitations of what we're presenting you as your new job. As opposed to, you are a complex, you know, human being that has an interworld that needs exploration and nurturing, and your faithful vocation can only emerge when that's holistically held, when that journey is entered into with slow reverence over many years. Which is why now I'm 40, okay, I lied, I'm 42, (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't count the two of those years because of COVID. <laughs> Which is only why now, having been on that journey, am I finally being able to, with specificity, name my unique vocation. Right? But we weren't, we weren't given that kind of long view when we were young and ambitious and, and, and driven, and quite honestly, only given one model of vocational ministry. Right? Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it certainly names that, that component of it, of it, Brian. And it, what it also does is it frees me of the need to have to reject. By extension, I'm rejecting all this other nonsense. <laughs> right? By just beholding my own true self. Right? And, and continuing, continuing to walk the inner journey of discovery. You know? And that gets to, you know, to sort of, you know, jump the gun here. That gets to the whole subversion thing. For I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to immediately ask. We'll have to save that discussion on subversion for our next episode. But instead, I would love to introduce you to yet another pastor, one you have heard in our introduction. His name is Sean, and he has yet another unique story of growing up in the place he currently ministers. But his story nails what we are trying to convey in our discussion on rejection. Here he is. So my name's Sean Matson, and uh, I'm a pastor of West Seattle Church of the Nazarene uh, in West Seattle, Washington. Uh, it's a neighborhood I've grown up in. So my dad uh, was actually the pastor. I don't know if anybody, do either of you watch Succession? The, uh, I know pastors, Nazarene pastors, aren't supposed to watch HBO Max, but uh, this is our own like little succession plan. Uh, so my dad was the pastor before me uh, in this congregation since 1994, and so I've grown up in this neighborhood uh, with the exception of college and then two years uh, youth pastoring in a foreign country, uh, Boise, Idaho. Um, and I was born in Idaho, so you, they, don't be mad at me. Um, I, I was a youth pastor. So other than that, I've lived in I've lived in the parsonage next to uh, the church since 1994. Grown up in the neighborhood in West Seattle. Uh, originally hated it. Uh, probably the first three four years, I we, I actually I was you know I lived much of my like kid life in Vancouver, Washington, right across the river from Portland. And so for the first three or four years in Seattle, I just wanted to go back and root for the Blazers some more. Um, but but Seattle grew on me, and it's come to be home. And uh, I. I've been back uh, pastoring at this church for uh, eight years now, and there, uh, a lot's changed. Uh, there's some new folks, but but also there's a segment that knew me as a middle schooler and 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 saw the temper tantrums and the awkward haircuts. And so, um, I now I'm 39, and my wife and I have two kids full of uh, bundles of energy. Uh, we have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, Tanner and Parker, and so we're having uh, as much fun as possible. We also asked him to share just a little bit about the congregation that he serves. So my, I would say my congregation, first of all, it feels like my neighborhood. Uh, it feels like West Seattle feels. And, and we, uh, we fit within the urban stereotypes. It's a very uh, progressive neighborhood, um, very much de-churched, post-churched, pre-churched, whatever. You know, there's, everyone likes their own little flavor on that. Um, and And... It's a growing neighborhood. You've, I think I, I read recently the median age is about 43. So you've got a, a bunches of families and kids. Um, it's 
it's deeply connected to Seattle by a bridge that's currently not working. Hopefully it will be in the next year. Um, so it's the, it has traditionally been the place where uh, young families like to, to move because it's so connected and so close to Seattle, but also kind of feels like a small little offshoot that has its own little flair and identity. Um, so a lot of the Amazon workers and tech workers, West Seattle has been traditionally one of the places to go. I think the median, I read uh, yesterday, the median house is like $743,000 right now in West Seattle. So, um, and, and there's several neighborhoods. So different neighborhoods have their own kind of style. And um, my church, I think, reflects many of those neighborhoods. Uh, if you think about, let me say this about West Seattle. For many, at best, the church uh, is irrelevant, uh, and at worst, we're part of the problem. And, and, and you can play that out, be it politics, be it issues of justice, um, be it racial issues, be it uh, the conversations around our brothers and sisters from the LGBTQ community. Um, often, the body of Christ is seen as not contributing to the shalom of uh, of our community, our neighborhood. And so I think the beautiful part then of my local congregation, so it's a small uh, church. Uh, prior to COVID, I would say we were about 50. Um, Post-COVID, who knows? Uh, it depends on the day. It depends on if the sun's out and if the Seahawks are playing. So, uh, But it, it is reflective. We Certainly we have um, folks who are deeply connected traditionally to the church. I'd say that's maybe 40% of my congregation, um, but probably 60% of my congregation really does feel like West Seattle. And, and, and I'll say this, half my congregation is 35 and younger. Uh, and prior to COVID, about 45% of my congregation was non-white. Uh, so Samoan, Filipino, Native American, African American. And so that just creates like this interesting dynamic of worldviews and different kind of cultural um, ways of looking at culture. I, if you think about some of the hot-button issues that maybe Seattle cares about and West Seattle cares about and some of the ways in which Seattle and West Seattle might name the church as part of the problem, um, issues of justice, issues around our LGBTQ friends, um, even like Nazarene-type issues of like alcohol, uh, my church, like my local congregation, would fall within— they, they would be closer— uh, to, to reflecting the worldview of Seattle and West Seattle than they would uh, maybe your typical like Nazarene church. And so, so like in the makeup of my congregation, it was about three years ago, we did a, we did a survey on the issues of like, should the church be affirming or not? Um, and 45% of my congregation, absolutely. That's a no-brainer. Why would you even ask that question? 45% are like, no, we've got we've to be conserving on that issue. And then you got 10% that just can't make up their mind. Um, I, I say... About 70% of the adults in my church are very comfortable going out with their neighbors and having a glass of wine with dinner or going to a bar for a beer, and that's the way they connect socially in their neighborhoods. And so um, it's, it's, it's beautiful in that I, the congregation I get to walk alongside is very similar to the neighbors that I live next to um, that don't attend my church. We also asked him how a pastor's kid would end up back in the church that he grew up in, pastoring the same community that he was a part of as a child. And his answer is this beautiful story of not only a call to ministry, but a call to rejection. Yeah, so that, I mean, to tell it, to tell it well and to paint the whole picture, you really got to go back to, to the fall of 94, honestly, when we moved 
we moved. I was in, uh, it was the middle of my sixth grade year. I was in an elementary school in Vancouver, Washington that was predominantly a white uh, community um, and, and school. And in the middle of the year, we moved to Seattle in, the, in uh, uh, middle school and uh, to, to, to a very diverse school. And, you know, we could look back and critique that. But for me at that time, that was a culture shock. And uh, it had taken me kind of out of the space I'd grown up. Very, you know, we were very much the church family, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, choir practice Thursday. And it just like my whole world had been upended. And I didn't respond well in those first few years, had issues with school, getting picked on. And so, I mean, you fast forward, by the time I, I graduated high school, uh, going to college was the last thing on my mind. I, uh, middle school and high school were tough enough for me that I, I just, it wasn't even on my radar. I don't think I, I, don't think I put in an, an application even. And so I, I had been working at Safeway during high school, and I just decided to kind of go down that road. And it was, it was in those early uh, young adult years, 18 to 22, really, it was the first place uh, outside of my little church world where I had found any form of um, affirmation in who I was and skill sets and, and friendships of people who we just, you know, we'd chit-chat and we'd talk about uh, the world and sports and, I mean, you name it. And, and over those four years, I began to find myself and, and even potentially having options to go kind of in management training down that road. Um, but it was at that same time I was also volunteering uh, as a youth group uh, at the youth group at my dad's church, and uh, and my dad was kind of ahead of his day, and and he was he was having some of the conversations about um, how big the kingdom message really is, and how gracious and loving God is, and um, and conversations that can at times make people nervous, and and I I appreciate him for that, but also I was like, but we got to grow this thing, right? We got to do the church growth thing, and he wasn't he was not doing that, and so. So even in our home, deeply loved my dad, deeply formed me, but there was a bit of tension of, like, if only my dad could have my philosophy of how we should grow the church. Oh, we could grow this puppy. Um, and, and it was just, it was fun. It was a father-son thing, and, and, and he kept showing me lots of grace and letting me do my thing and reining me in where needed. Um, ultimately, I, as much fun as I had at Safeway, and it was good. I found my wife there. Uh, I was doing, I was stocking the milk shelves, and she was the... A Starbucks barista, and so I ordered way too much, uh, too, way too many lattes, and uh, so I, I deeply love Safeway, but in terms of like a vocation, it was not fulfilling, and so ultimately found myself at NNU, and and over those four years, that that brought back a lot of kind of, I mean, I had to work through some of the identity things that I had felt in middle school and high school, and so just working uh, through some of my own issues of confidence and and identity formation and skill sets. But what, as I was working through that, one of the things Ann and you did was help to open a worldview that really said, I think my dad wasn't crazy. In fact, I think he had been onto something, and because he was my dad, I wasn't able to fully see it. Uh, and, and, and so as I, I graduated from, um, as I got done with college and I, as I moved into being a youth pastor, it had planted the seeds uh, in me to, to begin to think about what it truly means to be the church, what it means to be a pastor living faithfully among a community and, and walking alongside them and leading them um, and, and, and beginning to just form some of those big questions that I've continued to ask since moving back to Seattle. Sean says, if only my father 
had my philosophy of ministry. This is something that each of us has said in our own way at some point in our ministry lives. We all thought we knew what was best, and it led us to creating goals that were wrapped up in ego and pride that focused on the size of our congregation, the reach of our influence, and the amount of power we could wield. Fortunately for Sean's congregation, he chose relationship and presence instead. As we heard, he knows the hearts and minds of his people, and he is fully and completely present within his neighborhood. Instead of chasing numbers on a spreadsheet, Sean has chosen a guerrilla-styled ministry that is founded on subversive presence. And this, this is exactly what we will be talking about on our next episode. So join us as we have yet another roundtable discussion about what it means to choose subversive presence over an institutionalized approach to ministry. I have been your host, Josiah. This has been the Gorilla Pastors Podcast, and I would like to thank you so much for listening. Join us next time on the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. Mm-hmm.